0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. As we return from the long weekend, we've got a special episode of Full Story for you from one of the great podcasts that the Guardian audio team has been working on. It's called Look at Me, and it's a six part nature series about some weird and wonderful Australian wildlife. If you haven't checked out the series yet, it's very fun, it's very nerdy and probably a welcome break from all of the news going on right now. You can subscribe to it by searching for Look at Me wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode, the final episode in the series, is about an amazing sea slug that can eat without a stomach and breathes via lungs that sit on the outside of its body. And it can also mate with itself. Here's science journalist Ray Johnston, and remember the wild's Chris McCormack to tell you more. What looks like a punk
2: can mate with itself, but probably shouldn't, and can live without its own body. Welcome to Look At Me, I'm Ray Johnston. When it comes to Australian native animals, everyone thinks about koalas and kangaroos and drop bears, but what about the creepy ones, the deep sea alien ones, the ones we might not have even heard of? That's what we're here to talk about with Chris McCormack, my co-host, who is from Remember the Wild. Hey, Chris. Hello.
0: So, uh, yeah, something weird looking, (laughs) something that can mate with itself. Any idea what we're talking about, Ray?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely not. This is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard of, and I'm certain you are tricking me somehow.
0: Well, here's a photo.
2: That's an alien, Chris. <laughs> Look at this. Okay, so this looks like a, a. It looks like an underwater caterpillar with tendrils coming off it, all blue and yellow, and it looks like it's got horns. And I am so confused by this. Is this underwater?
0: This is underwater. Yes. Yeah. This is an underwater alien sort of creature.
2: It's funny how many animals that live underwater just look like they're from another planet entirely. This is no exception.
0: I guess I imagine they probably think the same of us, right? Like, what the hell is that?
2: Which is why every time we're in the ocean, they're like, get out. How many ways can we tell you to get out? We're going to sting you. We're going to bite you. We're going to drive you onto the shore. And you're just not listening to us. Are these things dangerous? Uh,
0: well, some of them are more dangerous than others, but generally speaking, they're, they're pretty harmless to humans. But look, you wouldn't want to go eating them. That's for sure. <laughs> we're not talking about a single species today. We're talking about a group of species. Uh, here's another one.
2: Oh, wow, this one looks like it's almost a punk. It's bright purple with those bright orange spikes coming off it, but the spikes look really soft. It's like a gentle undersea punk slug situation.
0: (laughs) Slug. Slug. It is. It's a sea Um, slug, is it? It is a sea slug, Ray, but those spiky things on its back, what do you think they are?
2: I would guess... Well, it kind of looks like an anemone, you know, with the clownfish swimming through it, getting shocked. So I can imagine that it might be something that maybe contains poison or, I don't know, has the ability to make whatever touches it feel something or even just a warning system to be like, hey, can you maybe not eat me, please?
0: Well, you, you sort of, you, you're sort of not actually wrong because some of them can do that. <laughs>
2: um. Sort of not actually wrong is not the compliment you think it is, Chris. Oh.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, these soft kind of uh, spiky things going down the back of this sea slug are its lungs.
2: Oh, wow. That's super cool.
0: So that's how it breathes. Yeah. And so... Uh, its, it's lungs are outside its body, its branchi, its branchia are outside its body, which means they are naked, <laughs> they are exposed, therefore it is a nudie
2: brank. It's a nudie slug with external lungs. This is amazing. I can imagine that this would be a pretty unique feature. It's not really safe to have your organs hanging out outside your body, right? <laughs>
0: it- it's certainly counterintuitive to have your vital organs kind of trailing along behind you in a really colourful, flashy show of, hey, look at me.
2: Hey, look at me. I got I got streamer lungs. Don't touch them, please.
0: <laughs> Some of them can actually pull them back into their body. Um, They're
2: retractable lungs.
0: Yeah, retractable lungs, you know, kind of dangle them out every now and again, <laughs> which if that's happening to you at home, you call triple zero. Uh, that's not that's, that's okay for nudibranch. That's not okay for most other species.
3: So you said nudibranch. They're yeah. called a nudibranch. Uh, most of the ones that you're looking at, you'll be able to see that they've got this often like quite a feathery, colourful cluster of um, exposed, so naked gills on their backs.
0: So Ray, this is Nicole Mertens from the Victorian National Parks Association, and Nicole absolutely is obsessed with sea slugs and nudibranchs and she's full of outstanding and kind of weird knowledge on these creatures.
3: There are a couple of major types of nudibranchs. Um, So there's your kind of, um, there's your dorids, which are generally kind of like an oval shape with the feathery gills on the back. So there's another group uh, called the aelids, and they are... Again, they're like a very sluggy body type, so they're a long skinny body type usually, but they have on the back, um, instead of kind of these feathery gills, they've got these things called cerata. Um, They kind of just look like tentacles um, and they can come in a lot of different shapes. Some of them are kind of bubbly and round, others are like quite long and tendril-like and they tend to function both as kind of something that the slug can breathe through, but also it's where they store their digestive glands. So it's kind of like a feeding and a, and a breathing thing.
0: It's a lung stomach. <laughs>
3: yeah. Different ways that nature has managed to, to force these slugs to deal with the, well, quite a harsh environment, I suppose, like the marine environment. It's, you know, especially if you're a soft-bodied slug. Um, yeah, it seems to have, have created some pressure to to take on some pretty weird shapes. What is their environment like? What is their life
2: like?
0: Well, I guess when you consider, you know, they're living in the ocean and, and some of them are living in the intertidal zone, some of them are living deeper down in rocky reefs and things like that. And, you know, it's it can be, you know, they can be living under a lot of pressure down in the ocean. In the intertidal zone, they're exposed to lots of changes in, in uh, salinity and, and temperature on a daily basis. So it's a dynamic, harsh world. And there's so many different species of these animals out there and we're only really starting to, to uncover some of their mysteries because they, they really are alien-like to us. And, and, and I'll be honest, they're sort of sci-fi, s- supernatural kind of creatures, these animals. And one thing we do know is that they can eat things with stinging cells like anemones oh. that you mentioned earlier, Ray, and use them as weapons to protect themselves. <gasps>
3: One thing that's really cool about a lot of the sea slug species, so nudibranchs and others, is that they do this thing where they can actually hold on to the stinging cells that they've eaten. Uh, they can digest those cells, they can take them into their body, they can go and put them in the tips of their cerata, so those tentacle things on their back, and they will remain active and stinging to provide defence for the sea slug.
2: I knew it. I knew they were going to be stingy when you looked at them. There was just something about them that was like, if you touch me, you're in trouble.
0: But not not originally stingy. That's what I love about it. It's, I, I love that uh, these are my lungs. These serrata are my spiky back lungs um, that are naked, of course. And I'm going <laughs> to eat some stingy cells from stingy things that we know are stingy, like jellyfish and anemones. And then I'm somehow going to ingest those stingy cells and transport them to the tips of my naked back spiky lungs and then if you try to touch me, my naked lungs are going to mess you up.
2: I just imagine the first nudibranch to ever do this and just go into his mates, go and t- touch, touch my gills.
0: Oh, touch why? my gills. Well, happen. What's going <laughs> See what
2: happens. See what happens. They're like, how did you do that? <laughs> So why don't we know much about these animals? Surely there are a lot of people who'd be interested in researching them. They're interesting, right?
0: Yeah, they are really interesting, but I guess they're not always living right before our eyes. They're living in uh, rock pools and they're living under the sea. And so funnily enough, one of the communities most familiar with them are scuba divers who love to photograph them and sometimes call them the butterflies of the sea because they're, of course, so beautiful looking. And so the Victoria National Parks Association is partnering with the scuba diving community in Victoria to help monitor these many, many species of nudibranchs because they are actually great bioindicators. They tell us a lot about environmental change because they have rapid life cycles Ah. and quite specific food requirements. Yeah, so they are really important they're amazing animals and
3: uh yeah we're learning more and more quite recently um another another bunch of sea slugs the the sap sucking sea slugs um which just get their name because they they suck the sap out of the algae cells these sap sucking sea slugs um can also harvest the the chloroplast in algae so like the the stuff that photosynthesise for the algae and give the algae the energy. There's a bunch of these sea slugs that they think can actually survive for quite a long time without eating because they are themselves still benefiting from those photosynthetic chloroplasts.
0: They've become plants. Yep. I'm just going to say it. I think these animals are the next major issue for humanity to deal with. They are absorbing (laughs) the powers of everything around them and they're going to come knocking at some point and they get all of a sudden... They're going to, I don't know, absorb your ability to do amazing podcasts, Ray, and then you'll be out of a job and the sea <laughs> slugs will be doing everything. <laughs> it's pretty incredible.
2: They're going to come knocking on our doors and go, hey, we've seen this giant garbage island you've made in the middle of the ocean. We'd like you to stop that immediately or we're going to take you over and rule the world. Thank you very much.
0: Well, you think that's weird, Ray? You know, they can take the power of plants uh, but that's not even the weirdest thing. We're still just dabbling in the shallows of these oceanic weirdos. So here is where things get truly, truly interesting.
3: Just recently a paper came out where one of these sap-sucking sea slugs was observed in the lab, multiple individuals observed in the lab, and um, Dropping their bodies in the way that, like a, a lizard, can drop a tail.
0: Hang on. So, what's left once you drop the body of a slug?
3: Basically, the head. And and they are they're, they're quite simple animals, but they do still have things like stomachs and hearts and everything. And the stomach and the heart, everything gets ejected. It's just the head of the slug. What? Um. The researchers found that these guys were still able to kind of do their own thing. Some of them even eat. But what they found is that yeah, after a while like the, the body started growing back, the, so the head of the slug um, grew its own body back and a lot of them were fine.
0: What? But they're eating when they have no stomach and how are they breathing? I don't understand Nicole, <laughs> make me understand.
3: The theory is that perhaps this is a species that is actually being, um, benefiting from the, the whole stealing the, the algal chloroplast and being able to do the photosynthesis, um, so surviving that way and they think it might have something to do with either a mechanism to to escape if they're say like entangled in something so caught in some like caught in their food caught in some algae Um, because then you can just drop the the heavy old body and and go about your business Um, or they do get parasites and I guess the idea is that if you are if you're a slug crawling along and you've just got like parasites for days and you can't really move and it's all it's all pretty sad they can just go yep just gonna just gonna drop that body and get a new one. These nudibranchs—they're so incredible.
2: Like the fact that they're able to stay alive with just a head. Like they've just got a head. Like we were just talking about how they've got their lungs and their stomach and these, you know, tendrils outside of their body. Being able to stay alive, being just a (laughs) head—it defies all odds.
0: Well, Ray, no episode of Look At Me would be complete without entering our favourite segment, which is how weird is the sex for this group of animals?
2: Oh, wow. I can only imagine. And are they doing it when they're just heads? I, I don't... Like I have so many questions that I don't really want to know the answers to, but I'm going to ask anyway and then possibly have nightmares about. I have been having nightmares about the some of the animals in our previous episodes, so... Look, just lay it on me.
0: One of the most interesting things about nudibranch and sea slug reproduction to me is the fact that uh, they are male and female. They are hermaphroditic. But one of the issues with being a hermaphroditic species, Ray, is self-fertilisation, which sounds really dirty. (laughs) It just means it
2: sounds rather convenient really it,
0: it can be but you do want it you do want to swap your genes around with other sea slugs because you do want to get that genetic diversity and you want to have a population that is you know got that genetic capacity to respond to changes and adapt in, in your environment um, I can tell you right now that if I was self fertilizing and just cloning myself repeatedly uh, my population would crash as soon as any kind of stress or issue came up so uh, <laughs> (laughs) You know.
2: (laughs) You'd get to avoid dating, though, so that seems like a plus. Yes.
0: And so they've kind of got a bunch of different options um, at their disposal.
3: Sea slugs seem to have this thing where, um, you know, they have, uh, like, these things called genital apertures and they'll have a male aperture and a female aperture um basically yeah kind of just little pockets where the um yeah where the sex organs are and they have them on the right side of the body so the one side of the body and every slug has that on that one side of the body so they basically if they want to mate with another sea slug they kind of have to like line up top and tail with each other and, and dock into the different yeah, the, the, the alternate um, aperture.
0: Sorry, doc.
3: <laughs> yeah, so... Look, <laughs> basically, yeah, they'll line up, then they might take turns like swapping the, the, the sperm into the female aperture. Sometimes they kind of form these almost like conga lines of slugs where they're all kind of just like, joining up with each other. It seems to be rather convenient.
2: Uh, you, you, you would never be stuck for a mate, I suppose. Because you could do it with anyone from your species, really. There's a lot of
0: options, but I guess you also face a lot of rejection, maybe. Or maybe they don't. I don't know. (laughs) know.
2: (laughs) Who can tell? Have we asked them?
0: Literally anyone's a viable partner, and I'm alone. That's (laughs) (laughs) no.
3: Beauty sex is great. There's a species, a couple of species, that um, instead of doing the, the aperture lineup thing, they will stab their penises into the, the bodies of another slug. Uh,
0: is that consensual, or is it sort of? Is, it sounds quite violent.
3: Yeah, look, it's um, I, look, I can't speak to consensual. <laughs> sure well, anyway, the slugs are finding each other, and this is this is happening. There is one species that, for whatever reason, um, and again, it's one of these things where this happens and everyone goes, hmm, that's interesting. Not really sure why, though. There's this is one species that does the, the stabbing thing that always stabs their partner in the head. Now, we're not really sure why, but they do.
2: Yeah, that's awful. That's awful behaviour from these slugs. Look, I've, I've admired them up until this point. And now I'm starting to question that admiration. Never have heroes, I think, <laughs> The moral of
0: this episode <laughs> is. Yeah, Ray, right, look, brank are a lot. But before, you know, you're completely disillusioned
4: with this group of animals. I'm Robert Byrne, commonly known as Bob. I'm a builder. And I look at myself as a builder, as a carpenter, not as an expert on sea slugs. That was a hobby, and just a hobby. It never paid me a cent. In fact, it cost me a fortune. Bob is one of Australia's foremost
0: experts in sea slugs and nudibranch. He spent his entire life looking for these animals, identifying these animals.
4: I realised that there were more than one sort of shell, and I became a shell collector as a young adolescent. What happened next... I found something, took it to a meeting of the Shell Club in Melbourne, spoke to Hope McPherson, who was the curator of shells at the museum, and said, What's this? And she said I don't know. But it might be this, but if it is, it hasn't been seen since nineteen oh five. I thought, Hm, well, there must be other things around. So I started to look, and that was it. I've been hooked on sea slugs ever since. Bob
0: is now in his 80s. Unlike a lot of the other experts in their field that we tend to talk about, Ray, Bob isn't an academic. He, he, he didn't study uh, marine biology or anything like that at university. He's a, he's a builder, yet he has had an enormous contribution to our understanding of these animals. Um. So when Bob was starting out, uh, there was hardly anyone in the world that, that really was interested in sea slugs and nudibranchs. And, you know, it's not like today where lots of people love to go out and uh, take photos of them, you know, divers, snorkelers or people, you know, just walking along the beach if they see them in rock pools. It wasn't like that for Bob. And so he really had to dive headfirst into this kind of obscure academic realm in order to, to get anywhere and to, to gather knowledge on these animals. You know, and one of the, the most amazing examples of this is that, uh, you know, as a teenager, really, he had these international academic pen pals in Brazil and Japan and Europe who were the handful of people globally who were working on sea slugs and he was writing to them and they were
4: sending him papers and he was sending them stuff. 1959, some Japanese scientists found little slugs that had a, like a little cockle shell or a little mussel shell on the back. But it had a snail inside. Now, all bivalves—your so mussels, your cockles, your clams, etc.—they're all two shells. But they don't have a head that sticks out. They don't have a, a real foot that crawls along. They don't have teeth in the head to be able to manipulate and extract food. So what did I do? Early in January or February, 1960. The Shell Club had a field trip down to Point Danger at Torquay. I had no idea about these things. But I looked and looked and looked and looked. Then I found that one. And I found that one crawling in my bucket.
0: It's, it's a pretty amazing story of a regular uh, citizen getting involved in science um, through a completely different pathway to what we're, we're used to.
4: When I found those, I knew that they were important in the malacological world because they were bivalves with a gastropod animal. I approached uh, Hope McPherson at the museum in Melbourne and I told her I had more than one species and more than one genus. And I said, I want to describe them. And she said, right no, no. And we did. With her help, she was very, very good, very careful. And the paper was submitted to Nature, which is a pretty big deal. And my paper came out in that as the lead article, describing a new genus and two new species.
2: I think at this point we need to redefine what is and isn't an academic because honestly <laughs> with the amount of papers that he's having published and just the amount of animals that he's describing personally surely there's some sort of honorary accolade or distinction that he could be given for the work that he's done in this field.
0: Yeah look I'm, I'm 30 years old Ray and I've only just published my first paper and I'm by no means a high achiever in that space but uh, I just imagine and the you know, if there's any undergraduate students listening to this, Bob, <laughs> your age and younger, has published in <laughs> Nature. Um, don't be dismayed. Be inspired. Yeah. That's all I'll say.
2: I think it's inspiring for those of us out there that haven't pursued, you know, academia in any way that we can still be involved in science and we could still do important work in these spaces while also, I don't know, being a carpenter.
4: I just went on collecting, finding more and more and more. Not of those necessarily, but of other things. Now, on that page there, Truncusia viridiana, I named that one. But that one there is species RB1. RB is me, Robert Byrne, and that's my first species in that genus that hasn't been named. Why haven't you named them? I've got to earn a crust. I've got to earn a crust to live. You've got other stuff to do is what you say.. I'm, I'm not a malacologist. Let's just go through and start naming them, I think, Bob. <laughs> I could give them names like that, but it's you've got to go through the pro forma of naming it. You've got to do it properly.
0: Is there an emotional quality in it for you when you do look at them or when you think about
4: all, all the time that you spent on them? I think I have not wasted a minute, because they're so beautiful, because I understand them, and lots of people get a lot of enjoyment from them. They've given you a lot of happy, happy years. A great deal of great and deep happiness, and they will continue to do so.
2: That's so lovely to hear. Robert Byrne there, a builder and longtime devotee of the nudie brank. I hope you enjoyed learning all about the weird and wonderful world of nudie branks today look at me is supported by the australian conservation foundation it's hosted by me ray johnston on darug country and chris mccormack on jar, jar country it's also produced by chris from remember the wild and jane lee and camilla hannon at guardian australia camilla also did the sound design This is our final episode for Season 2 of Look At Me. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not done just yet, you can go back and listen to Season 1 of the show, which featured Benjamin Law, wherever you are listening to this podcast. See you again soon.